OCC. How are y'all doing? Oh, y'all sit down, sit down, sit down. This is home. This is home. It's so good to be with you. Are y'all having a great day in the house of the Lord so far? Listen, we had such a fabulous weekend getting to pour into our leaders. It was such a privilege. But can we just give God glory one more time for being able to bless these two pastors? I mean, what a privilege if somebody could give you a year's salary so you could walk uh, without fear, without worry about money, and just walk in the grace of God and what he's doing on this mission. It's a huge thing, y'all. Um, God has been so generous to us, and it has been such a privilege to be able to bless these men. And when when um, when Pastor was giving the announcement, uh, announcing it at the conference, uh, Pastor Adair, who was the recipient, is just sitting there listening. I mean, we are describing him to a T. He still don't know it's him, so he's sitting there like, mm-hmm, that's good. <laughs> and when he when we called his name, y'all, we needed an organ because he was like, whoa. Hey, he almost hit the ground, but it was so, it was so great. So it's really been a, a privilege and you just need to know that uh, the weekend is just the tip of the iceberg of what your church does. Um, and we get the privilege to do so many things like investing in hundreds of pastors that represent hundreds of bodies of Christ around the world to uh, really be able to share what God has given us. So huge, a huge privilege and a big shout out to our pastor who has such a leadership gift. Um, but it's great to be with you today. Uh, we're in a decision-making series, and I'm hoping to give you a little bit of encouragement the way we encouraged our leaders this weekend. Now, <clears throat> this this kind of came to me because I was thinking about my years as a former athlete. Any former athletes in the house? Any former athletes in the chat? Just type former. That's okay, because you need to know if that's what you used to be. Uh, now, I'm not, I'm not asking, are you athletic, right? You might like to work out, but athletes, okay, are you currently competing and training? So, and here's the thing. Here's why you need to know. Because if you don't know and you carry yourself like you're a current athlete, everybody else will look at you and know that you're a former athlete. Uh, because we've all been to the gym and seen that person. And you're like, oh, they, they must have used to be, they must have been somebody once upon a time. Or you see people out working out and they run in sprints and just thinking they are killing it and they, they going about two miles an hour. Um, so I am very aware that my, I, I am athletic. I love to work out, but I am not currently an athlete. So in my, in my former days, uh, junior high, high school, a little bit of college, I was a runner. Now, I like to run fast. In my mind, I wanted to be a sprinter. I was like, I'm going to be Jackie Joe on a courtesy, Flow Joe. And my coach was like, no, no go on Flow Joe. You are not that fast. Uh, I was fast enough to be faster uh, for distance runners, but I was not fast enough to be a sprinter. So my coach recruited me to do uh, distance. I was kind of quarter mile, 800, and then I got into multi-mile races. And so he had this strategy for me. So he was like, all right. Coben, that was my maiden name. He said, this is what we're going to do. Two things I want you to keep in mind. I want you to always remember that everything we do here is about pace. Uh, very often in sprints and short distance runs, um, you, you have such a short amount of time from start to finish that you're not really aware of the clock. You're trying to go your, you're trying to go your fastest, but you're also trying to beat the people next to you because you have such a short amount of time. Well, distance running is a little different because, uh, the people next to you might not be next to you for long. They might be there with you for a couple of minutes. And then as the miles pass, you might, might have some other people next to you. So you really can't keep your eye on the people you're running with. You have to know your own pace. And so he would tell me all the time, I need you to have a steady pace, go steady on the straights. And so what he would do is uh, when I was 
training and he would have me coming around these miles, the two mile, three mile, four mile, whatever the marker was. Uh, he, he told me, you can't ever look to your left or your right and you're going to get in big trouble if I see you looking behind or looking ahead. I, it's not about anybody else running this race. When I passed a certain marker, he would call out two times. He would call out my best time or my goal time and then he'd call out my real time. And so in my mind, I always knew if I was off the mark, I knew how I needed to make adjustments. And so if I hit that one mile mark and he would say, uh, 702, 758, I knew where I needed to be and I knew where I was. And we get to around that three mile mark and he might, might say 1916, 212. And I go, ah. Dang it. And so what he wanted me to know was, I need you to be worried about the goal time that we have set for you, your personal best, not the people running next to you. This race is not about you beating someone else. You're only here to beat yourself. And if you don't have a pace for this race, you're going to be consumed with the competition. And here's the thing. You might beat them at the two mile, but you might lose the race. So if you're worried about where you are in relation to other people, you're not going to run a marathon well. Everything for him was about the pace, knowing your goal and where you were. And in that gap is where you made decisions. That's when I decided, do I need to pick up my pace? Do I need to change my breathing? What's ahead? What's behind? What am I doing different? What's my form like? Now, that was on the steady parts, on the straight parts. Y'all say straight parts. Now, then we would get to the other part of the race, which was the hills. See, because in long-distance races and cross-country races, you didn't run on a nice, smooth track. It wasn't any asphalt. You didn't have any lines and arrows. That was for sprinters. Cross-country races were run on rugged terrain. And so very often, we'd be in some woods or on some trail, and it was stuff to jump over and rocks and hills and all these kinds of things. And so what he would tell me is, hey, not only do I want you to understand your pace, I need you to understand that in order to maintain your pace, you have to go hard on the heels. See, because the thing about it is, if you think that you're going to keep your same pace just by nature of physics, running the same pace on an incline is going to slow you down. So you actually have to run faster and exert more energy to keep the same pace when the heels would come. So he said, listen, I want you to know your pace. I want you to know your goals on those straight parts. But on those heels, I want you to charge those heels. Because here's what people will do, Jada. They will slow down on those heels, trying to conserve energy, and they think they're going to make up for it when the heel smooths out. But if you don't go hard on the heel you're going to fall behind. So in, in places where everybody else is slowing down, I want you to gain an advantage. And so he would train me and he would have me, y'all, he would be in his car driving three miles an hour, drinking a juice box, looking at me, talking about right here, okay, sprint right here. And he would stop, he would start that stopwatch. And at that point, he wasn't even timing my entire run. He would isolate the heels and time the heel just to see how fast I could sprint that heel. And he did that and had me out there and nobody else was around because he's like, it doesn't matter who else is running. It doesn't matter who else is in the race, but you need to understand two very important things, and that is to keep your pace, go steady on the straights, and when those heels come, I want you to charge those heels and go hard on the heels. If you do those two things, I promise you, you will always be successful in your marathon. Now, here's the thing. This is so true. It's so applicable for the Christian life because that's all life really is. It's either straights or it's heels. You have moments where you're trying to maintain and you're like, God, I'm tired of being faithful. Nobody's looking. Nobody's watching. Nobody's applauding. Nobody's recognizing. He's saying, keep 
your pace. Because here's what's interesting, y'all, about running a long-distance race. If you watch the Olympics or if you know anything about track and field, you know that the sprints is when everybody packs the stadium. They want the ticket for the 100-meter. They want to see the 200. They are sitting there for those 10 seconds of their life. But let me tell you what. When it comes to the distance races, the Olympics only show you the start, and then they show you the highlights at the end. Because nobody wants to sit and watch that. So that's what it means when you're running a marathon. It's not going to always be exciting. There won't be as many people on the sideline, but the steady race is what we're called to run. A marathon is not a series of sprints and stops. It is a steady pace. Knowing your terrain, is this the place I hold my pace or do I charge this hill? What's ahead of me? And so today I want to encourage you as you're thinking about how do I live a faithful life, a consistent life, which, by the way, this culture is not going to invite you to live because consistency doesn't trend and consistency doesn't make headlines. We would rather you make a bad decision than just to be consistent because we don't have anything to talk about. We want it to be exciting. We want it to change all the time. When, when marriage gets hard, we're ready for the next marriage. When jobs get hard, we're ready to quit and leave. We can't sit anywhere for long because we, we're antsy and we have this need for change and constant newness all the time. So it's hard to make decisions that lead to faithfulness when we, when we are just fidgety. Like we have to move and change all the time. I got to be doing 10 things a day unless, in order to feel productive. So I'm saying there's going to be so many things working against what God has called us to. A life of, of a marathon believers, not, not sprinters. And so today I want to encourage you, don't stop running. That's it. That's all we got for today. You can put that in the chat. Don't stop running. Just say that with me. Don't stop running. Let's say it again. Don't stop running. And that's going to be important, y'all, because there's going to be moments where it may not be particularly hilly. It might just be the straight parts, but we get tired in well-doing. That's why the word says don't grow weary in it. I know doing the same good thing every day is going to get tired. And there's going to be other times where those hills come and you're not going to want to charge that hill. And I just want to tell you this morning, don't stop running. Make those consistent decisions. And I want to encourage you with the life of two kings, a tale of two kings. Now, they had a lot in common. They both loved Jehovah. Both were prolific writers, contributed to the word that we have today. Both reigned for 40 years and they were even related. But they had very different legacies. And that is the stories of David and Solomon. Father and son, who had different starts, but more importantly, had different endings. Now, we know a little bit about David. He was the shepherd, the one that was in the field, the one that was least likely to be chosen. And Samuel, the prophet, came to David's father, and he was looking through all the boys, and he was like, wait, who could be king? And then they brought in David from the field, and Samuel was like, surely not him. And God was like, yes, exactly him. And so the unlikely shepherd who had built up strength and courage by slaying lions and bears in the field became the one who slayed Goliath. And he is the one that reminds us that when God wants to put you somewhere, he doesn't need this world's structure to do it. You don't have to be a prince before you're a king. God knows how to put shepherds on the throne. So we see David start and we already know that God is going to do something interesting. Okay, you don't have to be assistant VP before you're VP. Y'all know what I'm talking about. God does it the way he wants to do it. But then we see Solomon start, and it's a little more traditional. I mean, he was the son of a king. So naturally, he would be in line for the throne. But he wasn't the firstborn. And so it was a lot of controversy around him as well. Listen, if you get tired and you think the, the Bible is boring, you can turn off your Netflix and your Bravo TV because there is no dysfunction. 
like the family of David, okay? There is no reality TV greater than the foolishness that happened in David's family. But we know that God uses all of that for something divine because even in all that dysfunction, it is David who is in the lineage of our Savior, right? So we see these two men. One had a traditional start and one had a not-so-traditional start, but the way they lived their lives were very different. So the first thing I want to tell you, I'm going to give you five observations from their lives that I think will help us in this marathon. And number one, a flashy life does not mean a faithful life. A flashy life does not mean a faithful life. First Chronicles 29, 25, it says, and the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty has not been on any king before him in Israel. Y'all, Solomon was great. I mean, he had 40,000 stalls of horses. The Bible said he has 12,000 horsemen, a fleet of ships. He acquired tons of gold. I mean, the queen of Sheba came and she was impressed. Solomon had a lot of stuff going on. He was able to build the Lord's temple, build a massive palace for himself, not to mention his 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, Solomon's life looked shiny. But here's the thing. Everything that shines is not successful. And a lot of things that shine aren't even stable, okay? You understand the thing between, between the fake thing and the real thing. A lot of times the fake thing is shinier. Now, my daughter, y'all, she's, she's uh, just turned four, so she, her independence is just going up another level. And so she, unlike myself, loves all things pink. And actually, my friend texted me last night. She said, oh, but you have on pink. I thought you didn't like pink. I said, ma'am, this is beige. I don't, I don't really wear pink. But listen, my daughter loves all things pink and all things glittery. If it sparkles, it's for her. So she has these glitter boots, y'all, that she loves. And it was a little thing I got her for her birthday. She loves these glitter boots, and she wants to wear them every day. But most of the time I have to say, listen, those are for church, or we can wear those occasionally. Because let me tell you something about those glitter boots. They're cute. But for a toddler who's rough on shoes, after a couple of wears, that glitter starts to pick off. And then the boots start to look worn. And then they're not as durable as these, as these uh, fake leather boots I got over here, okay? The leather-looking boots that you can wear to school every day. So she doesn't like these as much. She likes the glitter boots. But let me tell you what they look like after just a few wears. They look like they've been through a lot of things. They look like she's had them for years. Whether these, they're not so nice looking, but they're durable. Because sometimes the glittery thing don't last long. And if you get caught up in that, you won't be able to run your marathon well. You'll be distracted by the shine and you won't be able to stay on pace. We all know that the size of the wedding ring does not determine the outcome of the marriage. Come on, we know that. We know that the size of the diamond don't affect the divorce rate. We know it's some big rings that's in some drawers right now because that marriage didn't work out so well. And we know there are some people walking around with some very simple bands celebrating 30 and 40 years of faithfulness. So you can't let yourself get caught up in the shine. But we do it all the time because when somebody says they're engaged, we don't say, tell me about his character. We say, let me see the ring. Because we're in a culture that takes shiny things and make them more than what they are. We take symbolic things and make them substance, and they are not. And if you get caught up in that, you will not be able to run your race well. You can have a beautiful home and no happiness. You can be in your one-bedroom den with pots under the bed and no room for all of your stuff and be as content as you want to be. Now, when y'all clapping, I want y'all to understand that when God doesn't give you that blessing you're waiting on, you remember that you clapped on this point. Because it's great when it's somebody else not getting the house. 
It's not so great when you're on your 12th year in your apartment and you're waiting on God. You want your big key and your big check and your soul sign. And God is saying the stuff is not the substance. I want you to understand that to run a marathon well, to keep steady pace, you can't spend all your time scrolling. You can't look at people's slices of life and think that that represents the substance of life. Can I tell you something? We know how to angle it up, y'all, to make it look good. If you call me, if we have a Zoom call, let me tell you something. My office is going to look like the cleanest place you've ever seen. Might look like a model home because all you're seeing is the tightest angle. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to swivel. I get on my call about three minutes early, and when the camera come on, I'm looking behind me like, okay, socks, Legos, water cup, trash. All right. So when we come on, I'm like, how y'all doing? And it's the most beautiful slice of home you ever did see. But if you ever come visit, then you'll understand that that slice is the only slice that looks like that. Because we know how to frame it up, y'all. We're in a culture that knows how to filter it and frame it up. But the flashy life does not mean the faithful life. Number two, one bad decision is better than a steady decline. You got to know this, that one bad decision is better than a steady decline. Now, some of y'all, I just want to set free because some of you all have made some bad choices. We've made some bad decisions. We've gone down the wrong road. And I need you to know that you don't need to be stuck on that bad decision because if your heart is breaking for the things that God's heart is breaking for, there is hope for us yet. We know that David made mistakes, but David had a brokenness when he made mistakes. Look, 2 Samuel 12, 13 says this, David is talking to Nathan. Now, David has just done his foolishness. It is reality TV worthy because he found a woman walking on the roof, had relations with her, had a husband killed. It's a whole thing, him and Bathsheba. And so what God does in his grace is he sends a prophet. He sends a friend in Nathan. And Nathan sets up this whole story about a rich man and a poor man and a lamb and all of these things so David could see the metaphor and then he could see himself in the mirror. And here's how he responded. After David explained to him what was happening in this story in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. Somebody say put away. If that's not, is that good news today? I have sinned against the Lord, but the Lord has also put away your sin. In the chat, just drop that put away. Whatever thing is in your mind that's your constant shame on repeat, constant guilt on repeat, that thing where you're like, if they knew this, they wouldn't let you do this. If they knew this about you, they'd see you differently. Just put, say put away. He's, he's put it away. All right? It didn't mean there's consequences, but that's not the thing that defines you. It says the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And here's the beautiful part, y'all, in the midst of his weakness. Now, that does not mean there won't be consequences. But listen, one bad decision is still better than a steady decline because we see in Acts 13, 22, that David had a heart after God. He was a man after God's own heart. So how is this still his testimony when we know he made many mistakes? Because bad decisions individually do not necessarily mean a steady decline. What you need to be concerned about is when you make mistakes and you're not bothered until you get caught. That's, that's the sign. It's like I, I'm good unless somebody finds out. See, because when my heart breaks for the things that God's heart breaks for, then I'm sad even if nobody ever knows because I know God knows. 
Listen, my kids, and they're arguing all the time. They, they add each other's throats, and sometimes it sounds like World War II. And then you go up there, and three minutes later, they're best friends again. It is the thing of siblings. And, and when they get caught, I mean, my daughter, and she is, she is a bit dramatic, she will do something to my son because he's physically bigger and stronger. So when they're wrestling and all kind of stuff, she tries to be rough. He usually wins, and she gets upset. But she is the master of the words. So she'll say stuff to him just to get under his skin. And out of the blue, she'll just be like, Joa, I think you're in trouble. And he'll be like, what? Why? What did I do? She'll be like, I don't know. Just out of the blue. So he'll be like, Mom, Chloe said I'm in trouble. I said, well, are you? I don't know. Then why? Why are you listening to her? Right? Y'all, she, her, her way with words. And I said, son, she's only four. You got to get a hold on this because as she gets older, it's going to get worse. She just will come to him sometimes and go, Joa, I don't think that's right. He was like, why? What happened? I mean, right, she knows how to get under his skin. So then I come to her. Now, she's not sad when she gets under his skin. And I'll ask her, Chloe, did you say this? Did you do this? And so she's, she learned not to lie because that comes with real consequences. So this is what she'll say. She just kind of look to the side. Like, I shall not confirm nor deny this accusation. And so she won't say anything. And, and she don't look very bothered about it until I say, hey, guess what? You're not going to get that treat after dinner. Or you're going to go to bed early. Or you're going to be in your room for a few minutes. And then it's lay down, roll around, dramatics. My heart is breaking. Mommy, how could you do this? What kind of parent are you? I mean, she is distraught. And I want to say to her, I need you to be sad when you hurt your brother's feelings. Not when you get caught. Listen, the, the heart for God doesn't wait until you get caught or exposed or, or get in trouble or there's some punishment. When you have a heart for God, your heart breaks as soon as you break God's heart because if nobody else sees, he sees. But here's the thing. One bad decision, y'all, it can't stop us. Our hearts are supposed to be broken. And then God says, listen, after you fail, after you make mistakes, do you know that after you sin, God doesn't call you home to heaven? Do I have a witness in here? That God doesn't call you home to heaven every time you make a mistake. There's still work for you to have to do. He still has purpose for you, calling for you. So you have to understand that even in my bad moments, if I have a broken heart, God can still use me. This is what happens to David, y'all. There's consequences for his sin. And the Lord says, listen, your child is not going to live. But David, with his faithfulness, said, well, I'm going to see. Let me still pray and fast for seven days and see if the Lord would change his mind. And here's what happens at the end of that seven days. 2 Samuel 12, 19 through 20. It says, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that his child was indeed dead. And David said to the servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. And in verse 20. Yeah, after he was dead, he finds out his child is dead, a consequence of his own sin. Indeed, a bad decision, but here's his response. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He anointed his and washed, got up, rose, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Because guess what? He still had to be king. He still had other decisions he had to make. He still had calling he had to fulfill. So let me tell you something, saints. In this marathon of life, do not make yourself think that at every mistake, you're suddenly disqualified from the race. God says there may be consequences, but even after I do what I'm going to do, wash yourself, get up, and go to the house of the Lord and worship. Listen, the enemy wants you to think that every mistake you make disqualifies you from the marathon. And I'm telling you, it does not. And more importantly, when somebody else makes a mistake, you don't get to disqualify them. 
You don't get to say, how could God still use them? I can't believe they still have this because you still have yours. We don't get to disqualify somebody else because only God knows the posture of the heart. You may see all the mistakes that someone else makes and you may even see your own. But God knows that one bad decision is not the same as a steady decline. And what we saw in David as he responded to to brokenness and conviction was not what we saw in Solomon who did not finish well. So there's there's a value in knowing that one bad decision is still better than a steady decline. Number three, here's our third observation from these two kings. Building something for God doesn't mean you're faithful to God. Oh, Jesus, that hit me. Hold on. Building something for God doesn't mean you're faithful to God. Let me tell you, Solomon's temple, y'all, was a thing of beauty. He drafted 30,000 men. He had 70,000 burden bearers, laborers, 80,000 stone cutters. I mean, this thing he was building was majestic and beautiful. And ironically, David had been forbidden from building that palace because of his sin and his bloodshed and the consequence of things that he had done. God said, you're not going to build my palace, but I'm going to let you prepare it. So he couldn't build the thing. Solomon got to build the thing. So we have one man who builds the temple, but ultimately his heart turns away from God. and another one who couldn't build a house of the Lord, but he had a heart for the Lord. Listen, what you build for God doesn't mean you're faithful to God. So we cannot be so consumed with monuments in our lives. They are not determinants of of our marathon. And so we like to rack up stuff. Like we like to have hours of service and we like to say, this is what I did. This is how I serve. This is how I give. Those things are not measurements of humility. Your dedication does not reveal your motivation. Your dedication to a thing does not reveal your motivation. You can be the one that gives out all the birthday cards and makes all the calls. And if you're doing it because you need recognition or you need somebody to say you're amazing and we need you and we couldn't do it without you, you're doing it for the wrong reason. You can do good things and have evil in your heart. You can build something for God and not be faithful to God. Listen, let me just tell you as a wife, I can cook a meal every night and still not have a heart that I want everybody at the table to be happy. I know people got to eat, so I'm going to get my job done. But that don't mean that I'm wanting, I'm I'm doing it just so everybody has a a great meal experience. No, because sometimes I want somebody to say, listen, this fried rice was off the chain. And if they don't say it, I'm sitting there salty at dinner because I'm cooking for the wrong reasons. I know I can clean up my house and get mad when nobody else appreciates it because I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. I can be dedicated in it. I can make it spiritual. I can talk about Proverbs 31. I can talk about cleanliness, all these things, but my heart is not in it. So you can build good things and not have a heart for God. So if you're in business and and you're trying to get your thing started and you're like, but God, I have these talents. I'm a salesman. I'm a strategist. I'm this, I'm that. And you might be able to build something great, but is it for God? And so you don't build your thing first and then say, God, can you put your name on it so that everybody thinks it's for you? God says, no, it got to be for me from the beginning. Because building something for me doesn't mean that you're faithful to me. You know, you can get, you can have a, a healthy pace that you maintain in this marathon, or you can be distracted by your own goals. Y'all, when I used to run, I really, I was very competitive. I, I did, I won sometimes. I didn't, I didn't win as much as my heart wanted to win, but I was very competitive. And one of the things I, I got in trouble for was trying to pass people, like I was telling y'all earlier, when it really wasn't part of my plan, because we had a long-term strategy, and I would expend all this energy trying to just, trying to burn somebody, trying to get past somebody. 
And I would be so excited because I was like, oh my gosh, I just passed this person. I think I'm about to win this race. I was like building something for myself. I wanted this reputation. I wanted this name. And then we would come to the end of the thing and I still wouldn't win. And my coach would explain to me that whatever you did, whatever those moves were you were doing back there, that wasn't for the race. That wasn't for your team. That was for you. And so you might have had a moment where you felt like you were successful, but over the life of the marathon, you were not. And so why are you building a name for yourself and not building a name for the Lord, believer? Are you more concerned about what you achieve in this life, even if you say it's for God, than what God wants to achieve through you? You can build big things, y'all. Come on, we've been in big churches where the Spirit of the Lord is not there. I've seen stadiums packed with people, and I'm not even sure if God has shown up in that place. We've seen big things. And they have God's name on it, but that doesn't mean they're for God. That will be revealed in time. So you can build something for God. doesn't mean you're faithful to him. Here's number four. You might not feel the full impact of your failure. Now, you might not feel the full impact of your failure. Okay, that y'all would say that's a good thing. That's a good thing, right, Jada? I don't feel the full impact of my failure. I don't feel the consequences. Well, this can kind of get you in trouble. I want you to read with me 1 Kings 11, 31 through about 34. 11, 31 through 34 says, And he said to Jeroboam, so now God is talking to Jeroboam. This is the one that's going to come after Solomon. It says, Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. Verse 32, he says, But he shall have one tribe, he, Solomon, for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. In verse 34, he says, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake. Y'all say for the sake. For the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. Y'all, listen. Just because you don't feel the full weight of your failed decisions does not mean that God doesn't have consequences in store. Listen, you can, somebody else's faithfulness might be the reason that your foolishness gets offset. But that doesn't mean that the standard has changed. And very often, because of, thank God for Jesus, thank you for the cross, God. But in this, in this era of church, what it means to, to be living under the grace dispensation or living under this idea that sins are forgiven and we don't have to keep going back to God every year for atonement and that God, Jesus has covered it all on the cross. Jesus paid it all could be one of the most dangerous phrases Christians ever learned. Because we think that because he paid it all, that we don't owe any consequence ever for our sin. We go into the sin already knowing how we're going to ask forgiveness. Oh, Jesus, I'm so glad you got me covered. But God, just this one time, you know I'm struggling, Lord. I said, I said no those other two times, but this time, Lord, please come through for me. And so there are times where you don't feel the full weight of your consequences. And that's important because, again, if that becomes your gauge, you won't think that you're very, you won't think that you're off course the way you are. When I used to run my races, y'all, because very, very often there's times in the race, there's no one around you. There's no one to gauge how well you're doing. You don't know if you're ahead, you're behind, because these races would be in these large loops and through trees and over creeks, and you just saw people running. But when you have to run 20 laps around something or you're running 10 miles, you can't keep up if they're on mile two or mile three or where you are. You had no gauge of where you're. You just had to know your pace and where you were running and where you needed to be. 
And that's the same thing that happens in the believer's life. If you're looking for the full, this consequence to happen, and that's the gauge as to whether or not you're actually sinning or actually making poor decisions, it's not going to work because God's grace is good. And there's going to be times where you don't tithe and God is not going to give you bills the next month where you don't have any money. He won't do it. He will allow you to skip tithing and still have your bills paid. There's going to be times where you're unforgiving and God still gives you grace in some other area. There's going to be times where you're unqualified and he still promotes you. There's going to be times where you're unethical and he don't expose you. There's going to be times where you lack integrity and he still blesses you and prospers you. And every time you do something outside of, outside of marriage with your body, you're not going to get pregnant every time. And that does not mean there's not consequences. And if you're waiting on that as your gauge, then you've missed the point of the marathon. Because listen, in the old days, yes, things, people did stuff. The earth was swallowing up folks. God was raining down plagues. Generations were paying the consequences. But grace has messed us up. We think that just because the earth is not swallowing us whole or we're not struck down every time we sin, that God is less displeased. And it is not true. So don't let the consequences or lack thereof around you make you think it's not as bad as what you really are. Because if that's the case, then you won't be able to receive the message of the Holy Spirit or what he brings to you through anybody else. See, one of the reasons David could be convicted is because when Nathan came, he knew that even before consequences showed up, David knew that his heart was not in line with what God had said. And guess what? He didn't care how Nathan said it and what his tone was because sometimes we get so caught up in how you said it and don't come to me like that. It does not matter. God will send his message any way he wants. And if you have a heart for God, you are less concerned about the messenger, more concerned about the message. You are seeing that as an opportunity, a mirror to align yourself with who God says you should be and where you are and you make decisions to fill in the gap. So you can't be consumed with all that stuff and you can't be looking for consequences. You got to know that if God still blesses me while I'm robbing him and not giving, that I still owe him. I still say this is my commitment as a believer. You can't wait on, because listen, let me tell you something. Somebody else's faithfulness is probably why you're not feeling the full effect. It's not yours. The scripture says, for the sake of my servant, David, I'm going to give him a little bit. I'm not going to take it all away in this lifetime. Now, Solomon's legacy will tell a different story. But he said, while you're alive, I'm not going to take it just because your father was faithful. So sometimes we give ourselves credit that we're not as bad as we are. And God is saying, if you weren't standing on the faith of someone else, oh, you don't even understand. What you're receiving now is not what you've earned. It's what somebody else has sowed before you. So that's why you can't give yourself credit for some kind of life well lived. You have to have a heart that's constantly discerning, making decisions, asking God, where am I? God, what is your goal time for me? And where am I? And help me fill in the gap. Because you won't always feel the full impact of your failure. Here's number five. A heart full of worship. Here's my last thought. A heart full of worship is greater than a head full of wisdom. A heart full of worship is greater than a head full of wisdom. Somebody say worship is greater. Just put that in the chat. Just say greater. Say worship is greater. Let me tell you something, y'all. Solomon had all the wisdom. 
all the knowledge, apparently. But David is the one that had a heart of worship. And I believe that is so critical to why their legacies were so different. And Solomon's wisdom was God-given, but it did not drive him to a posture of worship. Look at what the first chapter of Ecclesiastes says. In verses 12 through 18, Solomon says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And in verse 16, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that also this is but a striving after the wind. And here's how he concludes it. All the wisdom. All the knowledge. This is Solomon's concluding thought. In Ecclesiastes 1.18, he says, For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Because knowing a lot of things and not knowing God is not going to serve you well. There's no amount of information that you can accumulate that will outweigh a heart of worship. So Solomon looks at his life and he says, I know all these things, but my heart is heavy. David looks at his life and says, I've made all these mistakes, but my heart is full of worship for the Lord. And that's why they have two very different legacies. There has to be a dependence on God that's greater than the dependence on your gifts. So Solomon had all the wisdom, but it didn't turn him toward worship. And I know some of you out here are super smart. You're brilliant. You're talented. You're gifted. You sing. You sow. You, you strategize. You're entrepreneurs. And you find yourself leaning on your giftedness more than God. And so then you wonder how you find yourself off track in this marathon because a heart full of worship is better than a head full of wisdom. There's going to be times where you'll never be fully prepared for that meeting. You stop and you say, God, I need you to go before me. I don't know what I'm about to say. I'm really not even qualified for this. You won't ever be fully prepared to lead that team. You won't ever be fully prepared to parent. There's not enough blogs and magazines in the world to make you ready to parent or ready to be a good husband or a good wife. And when you're at the end of yourself and your singleness, and you're like, I don't know how to be content. I gave my friends all my scripture, and now when I need it, I don't have anything. Because I'm using myself as my own source. Listen, we need to return to a heart of worship instead of just heads full of wisdom and all of the giftedness, the good things. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the ending is what tells the story. David's ending. Here's what we see. First Chronicles 29, 26, and 28. That... David reigned over Israel, and he reigned for 40 years. And in verse 28, it says, and then he died at a good age. Y'all say good age. Full of days. Say full of days. Riches and honor. Over Solomon's ending. The wise one with the palace and the horsemen and the fleet of ships and the gold and all the Instagram followers because he would have had more than David, I'm sure. But this is Solomon's ending, y'all. 1 Kings 11 4 through 13. I want to read a few verses. It says, Now Solomon, 1 Kings 11, starting with verse 1. Now Solomon loved many foreign women. That You already know that's about to go bad. That, that's your intro to your closing thoughts. Because if you're at somebody's funeral and the pastor get up and say, Now John loved many foreign women. You already know this eulogy is not going to go well. Right? So this is Solomon's wrap up. And that's the opening sentence. 
Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh from nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage. He said, don't marry from these nations. And that's who Solomon loved. Neither shall they with you for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Somebody say in love. Now, that's a whole nother message. I may wait till we have our single and young adults conference to talk about the things that we cling to in love. Solomon clung to these things in love. Says he had 700 wives, verse 3, who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. Verse 6, it says, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as his father David had done. And so you know what happens, y'all? The Lord begins to raise adversaries against Solomon. Because he's saying, if you're not going to run well, then I have to deal with you. That means you can't represent me well. I have to disqualify you. You, got to, you can't be on my team if you're not going to represent me well. And so in verse 9 of 1 Kings 11, it says, The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away. Verse 14, it says, He raised up an adversary, Haddai the Edomite. In verse 23, he raised up another adversary, Rezon the son of Eliadah. And in verse 26, Jeroboam, a servant of Solomon, God had also raised up against him. Because sometimes God got to raise somebody up in your own house against you because you're not running well. Can I give you a secret that every friend that betrays you is not from the enemy? Sometimes God will allow somebody close to you to betray you in your eyes because you decided not to run well. Every, everybody that comes for you and that hates on you is not from the devil. Sometimes God raises up an adversary because when you're adversarial against God, he's going to be adversarial against you. And if you want to run this race well, that means constant, steady decisions. Can I tell you, church, it doesn't matter how big your building is. It doesn't matter how big your business grows, how much your influence grows. It doesn't matter how shiny your life is. Faithfulness is what the Lord is looking at. Because Solomon had the temple and David did not. And Solomon had the people and David did not. And Solomon had the wealth and David did not. But Solomon's heart turned away from God. And David was known after man after God's heart. So it's two different outcomes because of the consistency of their lives. And know this, good genes don't generate faithfulness. You don't inherit that thing. You got to make decisions for that. It is the daily decisions that determine our faithfulness. So when life is hard, two things to keep in mind. Keep your pace and go steady on the streets. And when the hard times come, you go hard on the hills. Don't slow. Don't stumble. Don't stop running. When no one is looking and you might not be applauded, stay steady. Y'all say, stay steady. When it doesn't feel like things are changing, I know you're in some situations and you're like, God, How long must I pray for this thing? When will it be different? I'm on year two. I'm on year five. I'm on year 10. I'm trying to be faithful, God. It won't change. Can I tell you just to stay steady? When you doubt yourself and uncertainty begins to set in, can you just stay steady? When it's easier to quit than it is to continue, just stay steady. When the marriage isn't changing, when the diagnosis is the same, stay steady. When everyone else seems to be moving forward at a faster pace, stay steady. When grudges are easier to hold than grace is to give, stay steady. And when the heels of life may come, can I just tell you, sometimes you're going to feel betrayed, y'all. And the unexpected person that you thought was closest to you, when everything was going all right and you were running steady, then that heel comes. 
And the person you thought was going to be your right hand, your ride or die forever, they leave you, they betray you, and they do it in poor form. Can I tell you then, go hard on the hill. And when you're healthy and everything seems to be going well and the diagnosis doesn't make sense and all of a sudden you find out something from that physician you never thought could happen, can I tell you to go hard on the hill? And when people find out something about you and they betray your trust and your confidence, you still go hard on the hill. When God has a faithful assignment for you that scares you to death because it don't pay well and it might not work out well, go hard on the hill. When divorce is easier than staying, you go hard on the hill. I need somebody to understand that this marathon is either going to require consistent faithfulness or charging through the hard times. That is how we run the race well. So whatever situation you're in, don't stop running. The enemy wants you to think that it's not worth it to be consistent. He wants you to think that You go around the hills or you try to hide from the hills and Jesus says, go hard on them. Because can I tell you a secret? Not have, just people have gone before you that have done this. They've paved the way. We have a great crowd of witnesses. Hebrews 12 says, but not only that, we have a savior who knew how to do this. In the steady places, he lived a humble and simple life. It wasn't flashy. It didn't draw a lot of attention. He knew how to be steady on the streets, but he also knew how to go hard on the hill. And if you know what I'm talking about, it's a hill called Calvary. That when it was least expected, when he could have avoided it, it was a death he did not deserve. A punishment that was not his, but he owned it for you. He went hard on the hill. And you know what happened? God exalted him because of his obedience. Because let me tell you something. Let me encourage you with this. The hill is not just a hard place. It's also the high place. God will lift you up. So even in your time of adversity, people can look and they see you standing. They see you standing. And they're wondering why you at your third funeral, you haven't lost your mind. They're wondering why your kids have not changed. You haven't lost your mind. You're still trying to share custody with your ex, but you haven't lost your mind. Your marriage is hanging on by a thread, but you haven't lost your mind. Obedience is what God will exalt. So in the hard place, it's also a high place, y'all. God says, look at my servant. Look at how they do this life. That is what the world needs to see. It's not just for you. It's for everybody that needs to watch your race. It might not be many on the sidelines, y'all. It's not a sprint. But there's going to be just enough people who see your race, and they might be inspired to join as well. Do I have any saints in here that's ready to run a faithful race? If you're ready, just tell us in the chat. Say, I'm ready. I don't know where you are. Maybe you're in a place that requires consistency, or maybe you're in a place where you need to charge the hill. But can we just say that, God, we're ready. We won't stop running whatever it is you have for us. Father God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for those watching. I thank you for those here. I thank you, God, that you have gone before us and you have given us a way to run this race well. Wherever we are, God, on the steady place or the hard hill, would you just encourage us? Not with the comparison of somebody else's life, God, but show us the goal that you have for us. Show us where we are and give us 
the discernment and the courage to make decisions that fill the gap, God. We want to be steady and consistent and live lives that are pleasing to you, not just in individual moments, but over the marathon. We want to honor you with who we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come on if you're ready. Come on, come on, come on.